Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can even earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome our host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. How you doing? I hope you are doing okay in your area of the world and things are, are going as well as, as can be expected as we're still trying to kind of navigate our way through COVID. It's kind of interesting. I actually uh, decided to go see a movie for the first time in almost two years in, in a movie theater. And I have to admit, it was a little weird at first. I And sat there in, in an auditorium for a while. So I have to admit, it's, it's getting back to normal, if, at least for me, has been a little on the strain. Side. So, but anyway, welcome to uh, Game Changers to uh, of this podcast. We really talk about anything that has to do with pharmacotherapy and health and really try to give the listener the latest information that's evidence-based and that is actionable, something you can actually do something with. And so we always try to look at the latest uh, latest studies, latest guidelines, all that sort of stuff, and uh, hopefully you find it uh, helpful. Today, we are going to talk about a paper that's relatively hot off the press, and it's a paper that was published in JAMA Cardiology, and it was looking at uh, it was an analysis of respiratory fluoroquinolones and the risk of sudden cardiac death among patients receiving hemodialysis. And I'm always happy when uh, a paper is in a major uh, journal. The lead author is, is a pharmacist, so and that was certainly the case here. So I'm always kind of a little rah-rah there because we don't always get that sort of thing when we're, when we're being pharmacists. So so this paper was a large database cohort study that, that tried to look at sudden cardiac death in patients who had received quinolones who were on hemodialysis. And so you know, before we start talking about the paper, then taking a step back, and talking about quinolone antibiotics. And I came out of school just as uh, Cipro was really hitting the market. So Cipro had been on the market for maybe four or five years when I got my bachelor's and was practicing as, as a pharmacist at first. And, and of course, you know, it, it uh, um, to say it was a blockbuster would be an understatement. You know, uh, you know the fact that it had broad gram-negative activity, the fact that uh, it was the only oral drug and remains, you know, the, this class remains the only oral drugs that cover pseudomonas. And at the time was felt to be fairly benign and of course, we certainly learned our lesson there. It was prescribed everywhere, all the time, very, very, very commonly. And then as tweaks in the molecule came and they came up with the so-called respiratory quinolones, right? So you had, you know, levofloxacin, moxifloxacin, you know, they had more gram-positive coverage, especially strep pneumo, then the use really exploded even more. I actually was starting my uh, residency when trovofloxacin came out and, uh, tr- and maybe it's more veteran listeners in the audience will remember trovofloxacin or trovan, but it was basically the quinolone version of a carbapenem antibiotic. It covered everything. It covered all gram positives, it covered all gram negatives, and it covered anaerobes. And we couldn't keep it on the shelves. I mean, it was flying off the shelves left and right. Because again, you know, prescribers loved it because I don't have to think. I can just put you on this and whatever you're on, it will probably cover it. And then it got yanked from the market. <laughs> Actually, a couple of years after I finished my residency, it got, it got yanked from the market for liver abnormalities and skin problems and several other quinolones within a few years of trovoflox and getting pulled from the market also develop problems as long as far as, as skin issues and other issues and 
during that period in time, you know, post-marketing studies started to really start to, to detail some of the adverse effects that quinolones can cause. Now, again, you know, on the whole, they're safe medications, certainly, and, and if they're appropriate to use, they're appropriate to use. But even today, if you take a look at, at the package insert of any of the quinolones, they have numerous box warnings. They have, you know, and, and it seems like every six months, there's a new Dear Doctor letter that comes out that says, oh, hey, by the way, doctor, and, you know, we've now had this adverse effect reported to us. So, you know, when I came out, it was, you know, you know, yeah, you got to watch your tendons and it can mess with your glucose. But now we've gone all the way up to, you know, QT prolongation and peripheral neuropathy. And now just in the last, you know, year or so, uh, there was a new alert from the FDA about aortic aneurysms, uh, you know, a risk of aortic aneurysms. And I'm just like, really? And again, correlation is not causation. And, and even in the paper we're going to do here, it, you know, you can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that quinolones cause sudden cardiac death, but this is often the best data we're ever going to get for adverse effects, right? It, it would be unethical to do a randomized control study to look at side effects. So, you know, this is often the best data we're going to get. And so what it kind of behooves the researchers to do is really do everything they can to kind of minimize confounders, minimize biases to try and get us the most clear you know, information we can have. And I think this paper actually did a pretty good job of doing that. And, and in fact, this paper is out of UNC School of Medicine in Chapel Hill. And I think the authors really did everything they could to really minimize it. So as I said before, one of the big adverse effects of quinolones that has, has kind of risen in the last several years is, is fluoroquinolones causing QT prolongation. And of course, as we know, in some patients who are at risk or in patients who we keep dumping QT prolonging meds on, that puts them at risk for the potentially lethal arrhythmia torsades, right? Well, Though they didn't really look exactly at torsades in and of itself, this paper did look at sudden cardiac death. And of course, many times sudden cardiac death is a result of a lethal arrhythmia. And as it's probably not that big of a surprise, sudden cardiac death is actually pretty common in dialysis patients. And their paper, they note that it can account for, for one in every three deaths, probably in this population due to electrolyte abnormalities, probably hyperkalemia and hypomagnesemia, which can lead to all that sort of stuff. And so there are other reasons, of course, as well, but they chose a patient population that already was at fairly high risk for sudden cardiac death, and they know that it actually exceeds the general population by more, more than 20-fold. And so then the question is, well, if, if part of those sudden cardiac death episodes are due to QT prolongation and torsades, what role do quinolones play in all of this? And, and you know, how are quinolones associated with that? And that's what this, this paper really kind of tried to figure out when, when they took a look at this. So in this study, what they did is they took data from the U.S. Renal Data System, which is a government-funded national surveillance system that collects information on almost all individuals with kidney failure in the U.S. So I'm not going to lie, I was not aware of this of this database, and I suspect that those people listening to me who are, who are into nephrology are probably well aware of it, but I hadn't, I had never heard of the U.S. Renal Database, so I did a little digging on it, and yeah, it seems to be a very comprehensive sort of database that would be at least as good as some of the commercially available databases like the premier database and things like that to try and extract data from. So I, again, was one aware of this, uh, but it collects data from a variety of, of other sources and in, in particularly in, in looking at, at Medicare and, and Medicaid data. That's important because almost all hemodialysis patients are on Medicare. So again, this seemed to be a fairly comprehensive database from what my you know simple peruse of the website looked like. And so what they did in this study is they designed a retrospective cohort study. Again, 
not probably the only way you're going to be able to do this, but they did something that I think more and more of uh, the investigators of these kind of studies are doing, which is, is what's called an active comparator new user design. And so what they do in more and more of these studies, and I've seen this in more and more studies in the last 10 years, is rather than just saying, okay, we're going to do a cohort study and compare the people, uh, we have a whole cohort and we're going to divide it in the cohort and the people who had the potential side effect inducing drug and those who didn't, they actually compare it to another group of patients who are on another medication that doesn't have that adverse effect. And so the, the purpose of that, of course, is to decrease confounding my indication, and it probably also decreases mortal time bias some. And so for all those reasons, I've seen that become more and more common in these, in these gigantic database studies. And for those of you thinking of doing these kind of studies, even on a smaller scale, that might be something to think about. But it, so they did that, in fact, in fact, the, the uh, active comparator they used was a moxicillin-based antibiotic. So either moxicillin by itself or augmentin, augmentin, clavulonic acid, because of course, neither amoxicillin nor augmentin cause QT prolongation. So I thought that was a pretty good way to approach that. And then what they did was they basically had this entire database. They looked at an 180 day period before the antibiotic was prescribed to obtain the baseline covariates. Then they made sure that in the 30 days prior to the index antibiotic prescribing, that there was no other record of another antibiotic being prescribed. So there was no possibility of confounding there. And then after the index date of whether they either received the fluoroquinolone or the amoxicillin-based antibiotic regimen. Then they did the follow-up for five days was actually their primary outcome, uh, just because the FDA recommends a five-day course uh, of treatment for respiratory infections with uh, levofloxacin and amoxifloxacin, which were the two antibiotics they particularly looked at here was levofloxacin and amoxifloxacin. They also did look at longer outcomes after the index hospitalization of seven, 10, and 14 days. So again, I think a pretty clean way to approach this, making sure that patients weren't on long-term antibiotics beforehand, and they were able to collect a lot of uh, baseline covariates that they were able to put into a, a logistic regression analysis, and then 30-day washout beforehand to make sure that there was no antibiotics for it. Now, one thing they did not take a look at, and I think as a pharmacist in, in particular, I think that's important to think about, is, is they didn't look at dose. Quinolones and amoxicillin, for that matter, are both cleared at least partially renally, and the dose would have to be appropriate in, in appropriately reduced in patients with hemodialysis. And there really is nothing in the entire study about did they look at dose of these drugs where the dose was the dose appropriate. And I think as a pharmacist, that's something that is a key in this paper that they couldn't look at, it'd be my guess, or, or maybe they did, uh, or had a chance to, but they, they didn't certainly report it out. And so that might be a confounder that they really just don't even really discuss much in the study. So, so then what did they do? They collected a whole bunch of baseline data and they did exclude patients who they couldn't get enough information on in the database that there was 90 days or less on hemodiagnosis at the start of the baseline period. They did not have continuous Medicare A, B, and D coverage during the baseline period. There was a note about hospice care during the baseline period, because obviously those patients would be close to the end of life, and then patients with the presence of an implantable cardioverter defibrillator. So obviously those patients are also at very high risk of sudden cardiac death. How they found the index antibiotic selection was Part D prescription drug claims to identify outpatient oral respiratory quinolone and oral amoxicillin-based treatment episodes. And they did allow patients patients to be in the study again. So if, if down the road, they got another antibiotic that there was still that 180 day washout, they could still be in the study at, at, at that point. So what their primary outcome again was sudden cardiac death, they used the definition of sudden cardiac death due to cardiac arrhythmia or cardiac arrest listed as the primary cause. So again, you know, this is a database uh, extraction. So if that popped up as the cause of death in this database, and, and part of this database includes something called the end stage renal disease death notification, 
again, did not know that even existed. And they found that's the numbers that they used to pull cause of death and time of death, basically. So that was their primary outcome. They also considered several secondary outcomes, including a composite of sudden cardiac death or hospitalized ventricular arrhythmia, cardiovascular mortality, and then all-cause mortality as well. And they also studied hospitalization for fracture as a negative control outcome. So again, looking at, at another outcome that had nothing to do with heart stuff to make sure that you minimize bias by indication in particular. Then they, again, collected a number of covariates, and they included, you know, base patient demographics, all their comorbid conditions, other prescription uh, medication uses, race, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. And then their statistics were, were fairly complex, as you might imagine a study like this would be. They did do an intention to treat approach, which I think is certainly reasonable in this case, uh, again, trying to evaluate this association. They did do individual analyses. So the, the primary analysis was this five days out with sudden cardiac death, and then they did multiple analyses for the other secondary outcomes, and then at longer periods of time. They did analyze them in the initially prescribed antibiotic of each treatment episode, and then for each study, antibiotic treatment episode, individuals were then followed up from the index date to that first occurrence of the outcome. And they had some sensory events and they included dialysis modality change. So if they went forward until they, and they went from, for example, hemodialysis to peritoneal dialysis, that was a sensory event and they wouldn't count that. The loss of Medicare, A, B, or D coverage, a loss to follow up, the end of the designated study period uh, and the study end itself, which was December 31st, 2016. In the primary analysis, they estimated both relative and absolute measures to assess a study antibiotic and sudden cardiac death. They used hazard ratios, as you might imagine. And then they did something kind of interesting that I've never heard of this before, but it's kind of interesting called inverse probability of treatment. I do a little research on this. So this helps weigh for confounding control. And so what basically inverse probability does is they calculate a predicted probability or what I think we'd be familiar with as a propensity score analysis of initiating a quinolone versus a moxalone-based antibiotic as a function of the other covariates in a logistic regression analysis. And then they use those propensity weights in the final analysis. So they had an unweighted and a weighted analysis. And so it's kind of an interesting way to do a propensity score matched uh, uh, scoring analysis that I had, I had to do a little research on and wasn't uh, familiar with as I am just kind of regular propensity matched uh, scoring. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Reading up on this, it certainly seems to be like a logical way to approach handling confounders and baseline covariates before the study was done. So I, th I think that was certainly reasonable. They also did, as you might imagine, several sensitivity analyses to take a look at, at the robustness of the findings as well. So looking at the association, uh, potentially, of respiratory fluoroquinolones and sudden cardiac death in hemodialysis patients. So uh, how many patients did they find? Uh, it was a large, large study. Like many of these database studies, it was gigantic. They actually found a total of, of about 626,000 antibiotic treatment episodes during the study period. And the study period was over years. So that kind of makes sense. And they found 265,000 about unique adults in uh, receiving uh, in-center hemodialysis of which they found 251,000 respiratory quinolone episodes and 374,000 amoxicillin-based episodes. So when it's all said and done, we're talking, you know, about 550 to 600,000 different episodes of either being prescribed a fluoroquinolone or an or amoxicillin-based regimen in hemodialysis patients. So a gigantic study, which means, of course, that even teeny tiny differences between the groups, whether or not they're clinically relevant, very well may be statistically significantly different, right? When you have that kind of power, even teeny tiny differences would be statistically significant. So uh, as far as baseline characteristics, there was a slight majority of women in the study, roughly around 50%. About one-third were African-American, about two-thirds uh, 
were, were white. Uh, about 20% of those were of, of Hispanic ethnicity. Many, in fact, the vast majority of these patients were on Part D low-income subsidy, about 78% of patients in, in both arms. Um, and then uh, at least half of them had been on maintenance hemodialysis for over three years. So one would assume that the vast majority of these patients were on a pretty steady hemodialysis regimen, you know, that they weren't were making gigantic changes and things along those lines. Number one cause of going to hemodialysis was, as you might expect, diabetes with hypertension following that. Roughly the same numbers of patients were about 26% in both arms and the weighted analysis had a history of arrhythmia. So that's important to know as well. Uh, heart failure numbers were similar. That's also important to know. And in the weighted analysis, most other baseline covariates were fairly similar. Of interest, the use of greater than one medication with any known uh, TDP risk, Torsad's risk, was slightly higher in the unweighted group of fluoroquinolones compared to the tamoxifen group, but in the weighted groups were virtually identical to each other. Now, interestingly, as I said, even though they're virtually identical to each other numerically, because of these really, really high numbers we're talking about, they were actually statistically significantly different from each other, which I think is always kind of interesting. So then what did they find as far as, as, far as the actual results? In, the, in that five-day follow-up period in this 600,000 patient uh, uh, or, uh, antibiotic chart, they found that 416 sudden cardiac deaths occurred, 266 during the respiratory fluoroquinolone follow-up, and 150 in the amoxicillin-based antibiotic follow-up. This corresponded to about 105.7 sudden cardiac deaths per 100,000 treatment episodes in the quinolone arm, and 40 per 100,000 treatment episodes in the amoxicillin arm. So you know, 105 per 100,000 with, for example, levofloxacin, 40 per 100,000 for the antibiotic-based ones. And that was, even in the weighted analysis, statistically significant with anywhere from a 57 to a 241% increased relative risk of developing sudden cardiac death with the anonafluoroquinolone compared to amoxicillin. However, and here's a big however, because of the high numbers that were involved, even though that relative risk sounds very high, because of the hundreds of thousands of patients in the study, when you calculated a number needed to harm using that inverted weight that I talked about earlier, it ended up being around 2,200 respiratory quinolone treatment episodes for every one episode of sudden cardiac death. So in other words, the number needed to harm is certainly there and certainly nothing was something we want to ignore. But again, you're talking every uh, roughly 2200 patients based on their analysis would be treated with a fluoroquinolone based antibiotic for one sudden cardiac death. So even though yes, it absolutely had a high a relative risk that was definitely statistically significant, because of the numbers involved, uh, the overall incidence fortunately is fairly rare. And then when they took a look at the other outcomes across the board, they were pretty much the same. When they went out farther than five days, they found that risk actually was extended out into the 14-day period. So when they looked at 14-day follow-up in the fluoroquinolone versus amoxicillin-based, the weighted hazard ratio was, was still 1.64 and was still statistically significant, though interestingly, it started to back off a little bit. So it seems like just looking at the Horace plot of the numbers that the, it seems like that first seven days after being prescribed antibiotics was that highest risk of sudden cardiac death. And then we're started to kind of recede a little bit, though, again, definitely statistically significant, even at 14 days in, in the fluoroquinolone arm versus uh, the amoxicillin-based arm. Uh, they then did sensitivity analyses. They then looked at different indications for different indications for hospitalization, and they found basically the same thing in the secondary analyses where they looked at all-cause mortality and, and, and all that sort of stuff. There were small but statistically significant increases in all of them with the fluoroquinolone-based uh, group versus the amoxicillin 
naloxone-based group. And as I said, they used fractures as kind of a negative control as far as, as hospitalizations. And they found that the corresponding incidence of events was 98 fractures per 100,000 treatment episodes in the respiratory quinolone group versus 61 fractures per 100,000 treatment episodes in the amoxicillin-based group. And that was not statistically significant. So again, even the weighted HR was not statistically significant. Again, trying to trying to, to show to decrease that to confounding my indication, basically. So what the authors kind of follow up with is they basically say that what their study shows is that in this retrospective study on cardiac safety, the patients receiving in-center hemodialysis treated with a respiratory quinolone versus amoxicillin-based antibiotic had a higher short-term risk of sudden cardiac death. And that highest risk was in the first five days, though that risk seemed to be continuing for even 14 days, and it was consistent with several sensitivity analyses. They note that other studies that have looked at this as meta-analyses of pharmacoepidemiologic studies have found fairly similar things. And so, again, especially in other populations, but definitely related to this population as well. So, you know, they point out that what this probably means, and, and I kind of agree with this, is that it shouldn't be that you don't ever use quinolones in patients with, with hemodialysis. But I think certainly our view in my health system, and, and I think this is probably true in, in many other health systems, I, I hope it is anyway, is that given the notice that we're starting to realize about quinolones adverse effect profile, that if you can use another antibiotic, that's probably the way to go. And, and we've certainly made some strides in my health system to try and decrease kind of the ubiquitous use of, of fluoroquinolones you know, for every little indication. And certainly I've seen in my hospital setting and my services that we just don't use quinolones much anymore. And again, it's not where we would never use them or we're afraid to use them. It's just many times we can find beta-lactam antibiotics that work just as well and don't have this, you know, these litany of long-term weirdo side effects that quinolones have certainly seemed to accumulate, you know. Now, that being said, dialysis patients are at high risk for infection. There very well may be a time where you find yourself having to use a quinolone and that might be your only choice. And so, you know, you have a bug that's resistant to others or you have allergy issues or, or whatever the reason is, you know, you have to use a quinolone. What, what the authors point out and, and what I want to totally stress, because I totally agree with it, is that, you know, yes, this is definitely an increased risk, but given relatively low incidence of the issue, if the antibiotic of choice in this patient's case is going to be a quinolone, that's what you're going to, that's what you're going to want to use. But certainly if you have other options, I think that this paper adds to the already existing literature that suggests that quinolone should not be our first line option for, you know, every little, uh, you know, upper respiratory infection where we really shouldn't be using antibiotics anyway, or, you know, the urinary tract infection, things along those lines. As I said before, the other thing they don't really talk about at all is dosing. You know, were these patients appropriately dosed with the respiratory fluoroquinolones because of their hemodialysis? And again, nephrologists, of course, I think tend to be very good about knowing the, how to dose these medications, but primary care docs sometimes just don't have that information at hand. And so I think this is another place where pharmacists can get really involved. If you are getting a prescription for 750 of Levaquin a day for seven days in a patient who's on hemodialysis, well, you know, that's not going to be the right dose. And I think that definitely deserves a phone call into the, to the primary care doc or whoever prescribed it and say, you know, this patient is on hemodialysis, weren't sure you were aware of that. The dose is more like 750 every other day or 750 after dialysis on dialysis days, whatever that appropriate thing is. And I think that, you know, I think pharmacists can potentially play a role in mitigating some of this, of, of this issue. But again, we don't really know that because they, that's not something they really discussed in the paper at all was dosing of the antibiotics. I hope that maybe with the data that they have, you know, someone would take a look at that or, or they could reanalyze the data with doses as another outcome to see if that played a role. But again, the data we have here, we just, we don't have that information, but it's certainly logical to think that patients who are getting higher than normal doses of quinolones are probably going to be at higher risk for torsades because high doses and high serum concentrations do lead to, to increase.
increase QT prolongation. So bottom line, more, I wouldn't say another nail in the coffin of, of quinolones, because quinolones are always going to be important drugs. But I think another paper that basically says that if you don't have to use quinolones, if you can use another, especially beta-lactam-based antibiotic, that's probably the way to go. So, well, thank you for, again, listening to this episode of Game Changers. Uh, we will see you next week. Until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thank you for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes below and check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com. We curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine and then deliver it to you. Join today and connect your learning to practice.